Look at verse 31 here. We're going to read several verses before and after this. But mainly, my thought this morning was on this verse here. Romans 8, 31. It says, What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? A couple of things come to my mind when looking at that this morning is number one, this verse is misused by a lot of people who think this is a, a charge verse that we can just beef ourselves up and get out there and attack the world because God's behind us in every adventure that we're going to take on. If God be for us, who can be against us? Therefore, let's pull up ourselves by our own bootstraps and get out there and get after it, you know. But I don't think that's exactly the meaning that God has intended here, uh, especially in the middle of not only this chapter, but the whole discourse of Romans. Okay, The whole discourse of Romans is God's salvation in Christ alone. Justification by Christ alone. Uh, our salvation is by Christ alone. And so uh, I don't think God here is charging us with, you know, hey, I've got your back, get out there and do your best and fight it the best you can and I'll be there behind you. So we know that that's not what that is talking about. And we'll hopefully, as we look at the scriptures here, we'll see kind of what that does mean. But the two questions that I see here, what shall we say then to these things? First question is, what are these things that he's talking about? And then the other question that came to my mind when I looked at this, if God be for us, who can be against us? Who is the us, then, that he's talking about? Um, who is the us in view here? Well, I think if we look at that first, maybe uh, we can see what the these things are talking about uh, after that. Who is the us in that question, If God, or in that statement? If God be for us... Who can be against us? Well, if we go back, uh, of course, we can go all the way back to the beginning of the letter, but if we just go back to the beginning of this chapter, I think we see it very clearly there. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. So I think anybody that God is talking about here as it relates to salvation, as it relates to God's relation to them as being their protector, their guide, their whatever, you know, fill in the blank. And he's talking to the elect of God. Now, of course, we've discussed this plenty of times before, and all you guys have heard this, you know, you all have preached this all before, you guys that were preaching. You guys have heard this. The Bible is written to God's people, front to back. The gospel is to God's people, front to back. Everything that is about the works of Christ are to God's people. Front to back, Genesis to Revelation. Everything there is for the elect of God. Now, we all are, are, I'm sure, in agreement here that the elect of God, that number does not increase nor does it decrease. The number that God chose before the foundation of the world and gave to Christ is the exact same number. And, by the way, whose names were written down that same number and names that was before the foundation of the world are going to be the ones at the end of the world who are going to be there with Christ. Not one will be lost, Amen. according to Scripture. Not one will be lost. However, yet, modern Christianity thinks that we're losing a bunch of them. We're not getting out fast enough. We're not going far enough. We're not having enough means. We're not having enough programs. We don't have enough stuff going on. We don't have enough things in the church to keep them entertained. You know, we've got to have karate classes and yoga classes and, you know, all these other things to keep everybody entertained. Well, that's because they've come for entertainment. They haven't come for worship. They've come for entertainment. But we see that, um, that everyone for whom God gave to Christ, they're going to be at the end. Everything that this book is written about is Christ, and everyone for whom it is written is his elect. And so when we look at this us, we see that the us here is the people of God, those who are in 
Christ Jesus. If they are not in Christ Jesus, this doesn't pertain to them. This doesn't have any pertinence to them at all. Uh, so it is them. We also see in verse 14, it says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Verse 16, we see the Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Verse 23, And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Verse 27, And he that searches the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So, I mean, I think it's pretty clear here we see that the us that is in view in verse 31 is the saints of God, the people of God, the elect of God, the sons of God, the children of God, the seed of Christ. Okay? Many names that were given. Sheep. Wheat. All those things, they pertain to us. So if God be for us, who can be against us? So if God is for His elect, who can be against His elect? But what does this pertain to? What does this pertain to? Does it pertain to me whenever I'm going out lifting weights at the gym? Hey, if God is for me, who can be against me? I'm going out here and I'm going to lift my weights and I'm going to do all the exercises and if the big bully guy comes, then, you know, if he's against me, God's for me. He's going to help me out. Now, if I go out here and the political system that's coming against us is, is against us, is God going to sweep in and take them all away? Well, not right now at this time. He's not. But that's not what this is talking about. If God be for us, who can be against us? We cannot divorce this context whenever we see that everything preceding and everything following has to do with the fact that He spared not, verse 32, He spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. It pertains to our salvation. If God be for us, who can be against us? Listen, there isn't nothing that can stop God's salvation from being given to His elect. There is nothing that can stop Christ's righteousness from being imputed. There is nothing that can stop God's forgiveness of sin. There is nothing that can stop uh, reconciliation, pardon. There is nothing that can stop uh, God not imputing sin. There is nothing that can stop the salvation and everything that is part of God's salvation because He spared not His own Son. See, God spent everything in not sparing not His own Son. He sent His Son, and in sending His Son, His Son accomplished everything that was to be done, that needed to be done, that was required by the law, by justice, everything that needed to be done, God supplied in sending His Son. He spared, we, we use the phrase, spare no expense. Right? Spare no expense. Okay? Well, in essence, that's what God is saying. I have spared no expense. I have sent myself in flesh to you. And I have given my life for your life. I have obeyed on your behalf. I have died on your behalf. I have kept all righteousness so that you would be righteous. And I have tasted death so that you will not have to taste death. Amen. If God be for us in that, no one can be against us. Satan can't come against us and accuse us. He's the accuser of the brethren, right? Well, all he can do is accuse. He can't make it stick. He is not. He's the accuser of the brethren, but he is not the one who is uh, turning God's mind. He is not going to be the convincer. He is not going to convince God. Matter of fact, um, if you remember... Whenever Jesus mentioned, he said, who can convince me of sin? Who can convince of sin? No one can be can convince God, the justice, righteous God, that I have sinned. Now, you might be able to convince these leaders here that's having a sham court, but you are not going to convince me, God, of sin. You're not going to convince me. Well, brethren, if we are in Him, nobody's going to convince God that we are in the same boat. 
Now, do we sin? Absolutely we do. I just was mentioned, I deal with my sin every day. But in the court of God's law, God does not see sin. He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob, nor hath he seen perverseness in Israel, for the shout of a king is among them. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not sin. Brethren, listen, those verses don't mean anything if God ever looks on us that way. He does not see that. So if God is for us, who can be against us? Nobody can accuse us. Satan can't accuse us. The world can't accuse us. We have people all over accusing us. I've, I've had it just even here recently. You know, whenever you mention anything about sin to somebody else, or you mention anything about doctrinal things to somebody else, what's the first thing that everybody wants to do? They want to point the finger back at you. Well, what about you? You're not perfect. You're blah, 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 blah. You know, they want to just accuse you of it. We have accusing uh, of everything. And the only thing that we can say is, you're right. I am sinful. You're right, I do sin too. That doesn't change the fact that it's sin. It doesn't change the fact that we are in need of Christ. It doesn't change the fact that we are righteous before God because of Christ. See, those things don't change just because we're sinners. Okay? We are sinners. But God's truth still remains. No one can lay anything, verse 33, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Nobody can lay a charge to God's elect. Why? Because if God is for us, who can be against us? And God was for us in sparing not His own Son. Now, that's the layman's, the redneck way of saying justification. We've been justified before God. Christ has justified us by His blood, and through that justification, there is no sin on our account at all. It's wiped clean. Therefore, there is no grounds whatsoever that there can be any charges laid against us. Is that a checkbook in your pocket? No. no. Hardly anyone carries checkbooks anymore, but you take a checkbook. You open it up and it has your little ledger there and it says how much you owe and how much you may have not, or not how much you owe, how much you have, or most of the time in my case, how much I don't have, okay? <laughs> it tells us what's there. It tells us what's on the books. But whenever we look at the ledger in heaven, under each one of the elect's name, there is nothing there. It's zero according to sin. And it's completely full in righteousness. Amen. Now, can you imagine that? Matter of fact, the Bible says that our name, that we are named, is the Lord our righteousness. Now, that's only Christ's name, right? But yet, we are so in union with Christ Jesus, and He so substituted for us that God considers our name as well to be the Lord, our righteousness. Brethren, you can't be any more righteous than that. And praise the Lord, that's how we are seen by God. We don't deserve it. We definitely didn't earn it. We definitely didn't perform it. But God has given us that. So who can be against us whenever God has declared us not guilty? When God has declared us the same righteousness as Christ. Well, nobody can. Satan can't do it. The world can't can do it. But guess what, brethren? Your conscience can't either. It may try. And sometimes in the flesh it does. It rears its head. It tries to point its finger at you. Paul said, you know, this struggle that I have in the flesh, every time I want to do good, sin is always there. Whenever, the, whenever I want to obey God's law, what happens? My flesh doesn't do it. My flesh, all it can do is sin. Even whenever I'm doing the good things that my inside wants to do, because I'm doing it through the outside, it's tainted because it's done in the flesh and it's sin. The only thing that counts is that which is in the Spirit. And so Paul had this struggle. And obviously that was coming from a mind whose mind was like, oh wretched man that I am. And we begin to think about those things. Our conscience becomes guilty before God. 
And rightfully so, because we are full of sin. But brethren, again, that is why the Gospel is there. To remind us how Christ has taken on those sins, has nailed it to the cross, has removed it as far as the east is from the west, that God is to remember no more, that there is no record of those things against us. So now even our conscience cannot bring any charge. Even though our flesh may rear its head, the Gospel is always there. The Spirit is always there to bear witness with our spirit that we are His. And if we be His, we be righteous. Now, I think we're well aware of who the us is. I think we're well aware of if God be for us. But what about... What shall we say to these things? What are the these things? Everything that we see after that is that God spared not His own Son, and that is why the God being for us part is there, because God spared not His own Son. But what about preceding that? What shall we say to these things that leads us to know that God is for us, that Christ was not spared? Well, if you'll look back, verse 28, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Now let me pause there for just a second. All things work together for good. Is that just all the good things work together for good? Everything, right? All things work together for good. We sung last week or the week before that John Newton hymn uh, about God. You know, I pray to God and I ask for grace and faith and instead of what I thought God was going to do, He did what? He just drove me down into the, into the dirt. Made me feel the evils of my own heart. Assaulted my soul. Left me to myself. Withheld His grace so that I might feel my sin and feel my evilness. Well, why did you do that, Lord? Because that's how I answer prayers for grace and faith. Whenever you see that, then you quit relying on yourself. You quit relying on the world. You quit relying on everything else and find your all in me. Okay? That's what uh, that's what uh, uh, God has done. Well, is that a good thing? Is that a good thing for God to pursue His worm to death according to that hymn? It was a good thing. Is it a good thing that sometimes the Lord leads me to myself to let me feel how evil my heart is? Absolutely is. Why? Because whenever the Spirit arises within us, it says, see, you still can't keep the law. You still aren't righteous enough. Keep looking to Christ. Keep looking to Christ. See, that's how the the Spirit preserves us. See, a lot of people think, you know, hey, Sin bad. We're to be obedient. Well, it's true. The Lord calls us to obey. But what does He say about sin? Well, sin is there for us also. Does He hate sin? Absolutely. Do I hate sin? Absolutely. But we still can't get around the fact that God has used those very things. Did He not use the sin of Peter whenever He denied Christ? Did He not use the sin... Uh, of Paul in coming against the church. Paul looked at all those things and said, hey, listen, I, I did all those things. I thought I had the zeal like nobody else had. But that very sin that Paul experienced came around and he learned something from that. Peter learned something. Jesus even told him before he went into there, Satan <clears throat> desires to sift you, but whenever he's done, I've prayed for you. Whenever he's done, feed the sheep. What did Peter learn? Peter learned something whenever he denied Christ after the fact. He found that God's love overcame even that. I mean, he denied Christ to his face in his worst time. I mean, you can't get much worse than that other than taking him and crucifying him. But what did he do? After the fact, he learned God's love for him was unconditional. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are, and notice there if you would, the word the there. That's the definite article, the. 
How often do you hear it quoted in the world today? All things work together together for good to them who are called according to His purpose. As if there was this general call out there, right? There's just some general call. Brethren, there is no general call. Calvinists tell you that. Calvinists will tell you there's a general call and that there is a special call. There's only one call. Well, there's two calls. There's the call to election. But there's a, in, as it pertains to us in time, there's only one call. Whenever the gospel is being heralded, it is not a general call just to anyone who will believe. It's a specific call to only those who Christ has redeemed. But here we see it's the definite article D. It's a specific group of people. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called. That's a group of people. That's a specific group of people. Those who are the called. The called ones. The called out ones. The called ones. However you want to say it. It's the called. Not just this whoever's called. You know, as an Armenian, when I grew up in the Armenian church, we, we believed that the call was... Just we preach to everybody indiscriminately, and that call there, everybody that's called, and everything's going to work out to anybody who's called and who loves God. So if I just love God, then I, everything's going to work out for my good. Well, brethren, number one, none of us can love God without first God shedding His love abroad in our heart. And even at that, in the flesh, it's not a perfect love. The second of all, we don't. We are not able to be the called just by our own choice. We don't choose that. We are called the called because someone else called us. Not because we responded to a call, but because we are a special group of people. Right? And it's to them who are the called, and we are the called because we are the called according to His purpose. Why are we the called? Because it's according to His purpose. Is that not what uh, Paul also says there in Romans 9, just a few verses over, where he says in uh, uh, verse 11, For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. The purpose of God is according to election. God's purpose of redemption, God's purpose of salvation, God's purpose of creating vessels of honor, vessels of glory, is according to election. So that tells me that election preceded the fall because it was God's purpose. God's purpose began before the fall. God's predestination and decree was before the fall. We are the called according to the elect. We are the elect. Who are the elect according to His purpose? You could change that and say that. It's saying the same thing. Okay? It's saying the same thing. It's a group of people. So again, we see that the us, if God be for us, is tied back to the saints of God, those who are in Christ Jesus, but to those who have been elected, the called. All things work together for them that love God to them who are the called according to His purpose. Now in verse 29, we have in uh, 29 and 30, we see what is typically everybody calls the golden chain of redemption, right? For whom He did foreknow, He did also, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Notice, if you would, please, it was for whom he did foreknow, not what he foreknew. Again, what does the Calvinist tell us? Or what does, I, I say Calvinist, what does the Calvinian, that Arminian, I was t- talking with Brother Larry, um, there used to be a guy that used to read as an Arminian, uh, and now his name just now left my mind. Um, he wrote a book called Chosen But Free, and he took this middle, uh, this middle road, uh, trying to uh, marry God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, and it was pure Arminianism all the way through. But he's trying to hold hands in both camps. 
Yes, we realize Baptists are Calvinists, and we also realize that Baptists believe free will. So there's this middle road between sovereignty and free will. That they, We don't have to divorce them. We don't have to choose one or the other, that they're married together perfectly. Well, that's, that's, not, that's not true at all, whatsoever. <laughs> and in this, uh, this man has said, God sees everything. And foreknows everything. And he even equated it to like a football game. He said, I can put in my VCR tape, if anybody still has VCR tapes, put in my VCR tape and I can record a, a football game that I haven't watched yet. The determination of how that football game has already been determined by the time I get home to go watch it. But whenever I'm watching it, everything is happening there. I'm seeing all these people doing everything according to their free will. They're running wherever they want to run. They're tackling whoever they want to tackle. They're running plays the way they want to play. And it, they're completely free. But the determination of the game is already there. Now, that was the most, Now at the time, I thought, man, that was so profound. That was the, and boy, I started using that as an argument against my uncle who was believed the doctrines of grace, and we all thought he was kooky. But <clears throat> I started using that. See there? Look at that. That's how it worked. God foreknew and everything. And what my uncle taught me, and this is kind of the first time I began to see this, it said for whom he foreknew, not what he foreknew. He didn't foreknow an activity. He didn't foreknow somebody choosing Christ. That's an activity, right? He didn't foreknow an action or an event. He foreknew somebody. For whom he foreknew. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. See, the foreknowing of the whom came to, down to being predestinated to be conformed to the image of God. God predestinated the called, according to his purpose, to be conformed to the image of God, uh, Christ, to the image of God, his Son, but it's because he foreknew them. Now we know that that foreknow, that word foreknow, means loved, foreloved. Right? It means foreloved. <laughs> I've mentioned it to our church here many times. Uh, if you go over into the Gospels and you see whenever the angel came to Mary, and it talks about Mary being with child, it said that she knew not a man. Did that mean she didn't know any men? Of course not. She was betrothed to, to Joseph, right? She knew a man. She knew her father. She knew men. It didn't mean that. What did she knew not a man mean? She hadn't been intimate with a man. That's the same connotation this word foreknew. He foreloved. There was an intimate relationship between him and the whom. And because of that intimate Relationship before him. Now, when I say an intimate relationship, brother, I'm not talking about the intimate relationship between a man and a wife. Okay, I'm talking about the fact that there was a love, according to scriptures, an everlasting love. There was an everlasting love for the elect before the foundation of the world. That is the whom, for whom he did for love, for no, he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. That's part of the, these things. What shall we say to these things? We say praise the Lord that he foreknew us. Praise the Lord he foreknew us because if God foreknew us, then there can be nothing held against us because he predestinated those things to be conformed to the image of Christ. <coughs> now, here again, the Calvinists will say, well, you're now going to have to appropriate the means. Get your Bibles out. Get your sermon audios out. Get your YouTubes out. Get your preachers that you like. Surround yourself with all the preachers, all the teachers. Get your commentaries. Get your systematic theologies. Get your theologians Get your seminaries, get all these things together, and you get, get to conform it to the image of Christ. Is that how we're conformed? 
That means if I don't do the job good enough, then I'm not going to be conformed. That means the conformity to Christ is left in the my hands. No, he said, those whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of the Son. Brethren, it's as sure. As much as we are foreknew by God, as much as He has predestinated every event, He has predestinated our conformity. That is why we're called hard shells, right? We're called hard shells, hard shells, because we believe the Bible says, we shall come to Him. We shall not be lost. We shall. Whenever God says something's going to happen, we believe it shall happen. Shall does not mean maybe so. Shall mean shall when it comes to God. Amen. Okay? Moreover, whom? Again, there's that word whom. Not what he did predestinate, but whom. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. You say, well, wait a minute, I didn't think we were glorified yet. All the rest of those in past tense, and now glorified is in past tense. Well, brother, we're already glorified. You realize that? Amen. We're already glorified. The Bible says that we are seated with Christ in the heavens. We are already glorified with Him in the Spirit. Now, this flesh is not going to be glorified. This flesh is going to be put down one of these days. And who we are on the inside that is glorified already is going to take on a spiritual body that coincides with what's on the inside of this fleshly body. And praise the Lord, we will be one whole man, not two divided men. <laughs> right now we're divided, one of Adam, one of Christ. But soon, in the Lord's time, we will be all spiritual. You know, 1 Corinthians says that uh, uh, that was not first which was uh, spiritual but that which was uh, natural uh, but it does say as if we have taken on the image of the earthly we shall take on the image of the heavenly we will have his heavenly body we will be like him scripture says we will be conformed to the image of Christ Jesus and it's a done deal but that glorified we are already glorified in the spirit in Christ Jesus. So it already is. Now there is a future aspect to that as, as I said according to the flesh. Then he also justified and whom he justified them he also glorified. So what then what shall we say then to these things? If God be for us who can be against us? He that spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? We mentioned this verse, I think it was last week. Christ has given us all things. Ephesians chapter 1. He has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. It wasn't just in time that we received these blessings. We received them in the Spirit before the foundation of the world. All things have been given to us. And he says here, he says, How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Again, these things have been given to us freely. It didn't come by price. It didn't come by earning. It didn't come by working. It didn't come by my being an honorable person, my obedience, my, my upkeeping, anything like that. It was freely given to us. Why? Why does it have to be free? Because if it's any other way, it's not by grace. And God's salvation is by grace alone. Not by works. The Bible says that if it, is a, if it is of works, it's no longer of grace. But if it is of grace, it's not of works. And we know that the Bible says, for by grace are you saved. So if it's God's salvation, it's only going to be by grace. And if it's by grace, it can only be free because anything else is going to be works. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession 
for us. Something to ponder there. Kind of goes with what we were talking about last week. It says there that Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God making intercession for us. But in verse 27 it says it's the Spirit that maketh intercession for us. Look at when you get home. It says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Now, if we all went through all that stuff, and some of us probably have gone through some of that stuff, we definitely all have gone through tribulation, I'm sure, and distress. Uh, don't look like I've gone too much, through much famine, but uh, we've all gone through that. But I can imagine someone who goes through all those things probably gets to thinking to themselves, mm, man, I've been cast off by God. Paul even said, remember? Uh, he even hoped that he would not be found a castaway. You know, um, and he went through those things, not in the deep, however many days in the deep, and all the persecutions that he went through. John the Baptist, remember, he was in prison. He got to thinking, man, I was, hey, someone go ask my cousin, what what's going on here? Is this? I mean, I obviously something going on here that I don't recognize. He wasn't sure. I'm sure we all get to that place whenever we see that, but it says here, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Just because we come through all these things, all things work together for good, right? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, they all are for our good. Nothing is going to separate us from the love of God no matter how bad it looks. Listen, brethren, this country is at the worst that I have ever seen it. In my 50 years, some of y'all that's been here longer than I have, it's probably way worse than you've seen whenever you were in your young years. I mean, it just seems like, and it, it seems like it has snowballed just in the last few. How wicked, openly wicked. It's, there's always been this wickedness. There's always been this wickedness. But praise the Lord, His constraining grace has kept it hidden in our country for many years we're just in, so to speak if you allow me the term in the closets you know but uh, it's wicked and it's just snowballed now, brother God hasn't changed his control over all things has he he hasn't changed his sovereignty he hasn't lost control evil is not abounding over him But yet we see all these things and we think, my word, what is going on? But brother, listen, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Just because God is not showing any love to the non-elect in the fact that judgment has come to America does not mean he does not love his elect still. Listen, brother, while judgment may be coming upon the evildoers, the wicked ones, Listen, he loves his elect. And while we see these things going on, don't think that God has not changed his love for his people. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors because we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. No, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Amen. That's how we are the conquerors. <coughs> I'm reminded of those passages in Revelation, I believe it is, about those who are the overcomers or the ones who are the conquerors. Who are the ones who are the ones who are in Christ Jesus? We are the conquerors in Christ Jesus. We have conquered all these things, but it isn't because we went out and fought hard against it. It's because we are in Christ Jesus who has conquered them. He has conquered them. Has he not been through every bit of that we just read? Think back to it. Tribulation. Distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. Is there not one of those that Jesus did not experience? He experienced every one of those. And yet he overcome all those things. Therefore, we are overcomers, we are conquerors because of him. He says, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brethren, what blessed words that we read there. I mean, it's just amazing. 
nothing. Our sin, our guilt, all persecution, all things outwardly, all things inwardly, nothing can separate us from God's love. Now, I don't mean this in a bad way or a blasphemous way or anything like that, but to try to get the point across in here, listen, there is nothing that I can do, no matter how bad the doing, that's going to separate me from the love of God. Now, I'm not encouraging people to go do bad. I'm just saying, there's nothing I can do. There's nothing that this world can do. There's nothing that Satan can do to separate us from this love. Why? Because we are the whom that he foreknew. We are the whom that he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of God. We are the whom that the Bible says very clearly that he has called us and justified us and glorified us. We are the ones that nothing can be against us because he is for us and that he sent his only son. Amen. Well, those were my thoughts for this morning. Anybody got anything that you'd like to add? Or any men have anything that you'd like to share? One verse. John, the 17th chapter, always just kind of blown me away. In the 22nd verse, it says, The glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. And uh, so he's actually saying that. We're going to share in the glory. Uh, and we're actually sharing in his glory. Yeah, man. The present tense. Amen. Amen. That's one that's another thing that's hard to grasp. You know? Hard to grasp that we're as righteous as he is righteous. We're going to share in his glory. I love the beautiful chain of grace here, you know, in verses 28-29. That uh, first of all, the God in the call and choosing the purpose and everything, and that then we find the we, the us, the whom. How wonderful that is to know that God's grace is so so wonderful that you know. And I've heard it said before that the worst thing God can do is leave us to ourselves, and He didn't. It was all because of Him. If He left me where I was, no telling where I'd be. You know, and another thing I see here is we didn't, we didn't see the word sanctification in those verses that we discussed this morning. But in First Corinthians chapter one verse thirty, it says, "There but of Him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption." And it was the sanctification of Jesus Christ that keeps us, you know, and and has caused us to be and free in Christ and before God, you know, stand before Him whole. So it's a wonderful passage, a wonderful call. Amen. I don't know about y'all, I think most of the time when I hear people talk about sanctification, to me they get, they have, they don't have it in biblical terms. Yeah. yeah. They think sanctification is a progressing... It's something hope. you can do too. Yeah, something that we do in progressing yeah. in holiness, mm-hmm. becoming more holy. But... Every place that I look, I, and I did study on this several years ago, and from what I've seen on that, number one, the primary uh, meaning of it is just being set apart. Yeah. Which which we were set apart before the foundation of the world in the election in Christ Jesus. But also it's being set apart for God. We were set apart as vessels for God that He might show His uh, mercy on, that He might show His compassion on that he might show his love upon that his redemption all this stuff you know that that has to do with if you allow me this the positive side uh because there's the negative side there's the 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 wrath the hate you know the justice of god all that is is to the vessels of dishonor and to the vessels of honor there is love there is uh compassion there is mercy all those things that are on there. Therefore, God shows all of who He is in those two sets of vessels and everything. But that sanctification, like you said, it's in Christ Jesus. It's not in our. Amen. It's not in our work. We were sanctified in Him. Yeah, John Wesley, you know, and he taught two works of grace. He taught 
salvation and sanctification. And he taught that you had to die out to the old man. And, and of course, that's the Armenian duty. But like you said this morning, we can conform. Um, and that uh, it was all predestined that we would be conformed. I think the, the key word in that is reckon. Reckon yourself dead. Our mind is to reckon ourselves dead. You know, we are dead to sin. We are dead to the law. And that's something that we have to reckon ourselves. Again, we may not see it. It doesn't look like that. But that's the standing that we have in Christ. Our standing is that way in Christ Jesus. Good observations. Anybody else got anything? Anything more? I guess John Wesley really went down that that road after he started reading the mystics. Right. Uh, and of course, having come out of mysticism myself, I can see why he got there because it's a very man-centered humanistic. Yeah, but uh, whenever you look at that whole system uh, of uh, sanctification by works or sanctification by obedience and everything, I keep falling back on that if that's where our sanctification comes, then I, I'm not going to be sanctified. Because just as just soon, how do I want to say this? Even if we put aside the fact that the Bible says that it defines the law as one body. It doesn't break it up into little pieces like moral, civil, ceremonial. It's all one thing. <coughs> and it says that if you break it in one, you broke it in all. So the standard isn't try to keep it as much as you can. The standard that God has set is keep it all. If you, if, if you don't keep it all, then you've broken it all, and therefore you're guilty of it all, and you're condemned by it all. So, I mean, put that aside. Just me trying to keep up a sanctification, I may, today I may do what I think is well, and then tomorrow I go back twice as far as I came yesterday, and good. You know, it's just a constant pedal. You know, and I'm going forward. I'm going backward. I'm going forward. I'm going backward. And I've mentioned our church before. Whenever I was younger and Armenian, I would lie awake at night in my bed trying to remember all the sins that I committed that day. And I'd I'd sit there and I tried to think of every one so I could confess them, so I could be forgiven for them. And I'm going through the the list in my mind, everything that I knew that I'd done that wasn't right, and everything. And then I'd get to the end, and I'm like. And I don't know, there's probably more. And then I would pray the blanket prayer. Lord, if there's any more sins that I haven't thought of, bring them to my mind or at least cover them, please. You know, the blanket. But the whole fact of living that fearful life of just all constantly, I can't perform, I can't perform. Now, to those who have not been given the Spirit of God, that's not a problem to them. They don't worry about that because they think their religious activity is enough and they're good and they're good with that. They're satisfied with how much they're they're doing, how much they come to church or how much they give or you know how many verses they know or what all they know. They're okay with that. But to the child of grace who's already been given the spirit, they have that uh attitude, you know, uh forgive me, I'm a sinner, you know. Uh they know, oh wretched man that I am, that in me dwelleth no good thing. And they battle that. They're, our sin is constantly before us and everything. And so without the mindset of knowing, praise God, we have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. We have been made holy. We are as holy as He is holy. Amen. And I've always, uh, and I think I've shared this with Larry before in times past, I always ask those progressive sanctification folks, what is progressing? What is being sanctified? If the flesh is just flesh and it cannot please God, if all the flesh can do is produce sin, and if the what's in us, the inward man, is created in pure uh, righteousness and holiness, if it's born from above and cannot sin, 
then what's being progressively sanctified? What's being progressively more holy? Because the flesh isn't getting holy, and what's in us is all holy. It's true righteousness and pure... I'm maybe mixing those up. Created in true righteousness and holiness. I mean... How does it get any better than that? It's, it's, a, it's the creation of God. It's born from above. It cannot sin, according to 1 John. So what's getting more holy? Nobody on that in that camp can tell me what's getting more holy. I've shared this with Michael before, but I used to have a neighbor who was brought up in the Roman Catholic Church. And as a young child, he was 11 years old, and he would go to Mass. And he would confess his sins and, he, and to the priest, and he would con- try to figure out all those sins, like you were saying, he was keep going and kept going and kept going. Finally, the priest said, "Young man, you're going to have to come to confession more often." <laughs> and he shared that with me. You know, what we're really talking about is imputation and substitution. Without the substitutionary work of Christ, we're not going to help at all. Uh, I was mentioning him last week. The issue of substitution has really been a doctrine that the Lord has really this year has really solidified in my mind and and caused to be a great comfort. Uh, and it was it was on the heels of going through. I, I preached through Galatians last year, the year before last. I preached through the book of Galatians, verse by verse, and it was through that preaching about the law and grace that at the end of all that. I really seen how substitution, not just in my death, but in my obedience, was so uh, so overwhelming to me. Is, is that that he didn't come just to uh, you know we're saved by his death, but we're also saved by his life. Amen. We're saved in the fact that that he obeyed on our behalf every bit of the law. So I haven't broken any of it. Uh, because that that substitution is there, and, and what a beautiful doctrine that is! And I don't believe that part of of it is preached enough uh, in churches and everything. But I think a lot of it is because of a lot of churches today they they preach law because they got to keep everybody in line. You know, you know, it's been said the more we see Jesus Christ, the less we see ourselves, and it's very true in in the scriptures today. What very well brought out. Mm-hmm.